The scripture reading today is 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make thy life as one of them by tomorrow at this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life away, for I am not any better than my father's. And he lay and slept under the juniper tree. And behold, then an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, and there was a cake baked on coals and some water at his head. And he did drink and eat, and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because a journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and did drink and went in strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither into a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And I thought I had a big Bible. <laughs> it's a virtual weapon. But is it not a weapon, the sword of the Lord, which is the word of God? Absolutely. Let's just pause for a moment of prayer and prepare our hearts. Our loving God and Heavenly Father, what a blessing and a privilege it is to be able to call you Heavenly Father. Thank you, Father, for what you've done in revealing yourself and wooing yourself to you by the presence of your Holy Spirit moving us, convicting us of our sins and leading us to see Jesus who died on our behalf, confessing our sin, asking for forgiveness and inviting the resurrected Jesus to come into our lives by your Spirit. Things that are just too amazing for us to understand, but we understand enough to know, Father, that we are loved, we are saved, we are forgiven, and we are going to heaven. So thank you so much, Father. We don't want to take this gift of your love for granted or what our Jesus suffered on our behalf for granted. Forgive us if we have. And Father, just restore us into a right relationship with you that keeps feeding us what we need, the supernatural energy and power we need to be like Jesus, to become like Jesus in our character, in our actions, and that we might glorify your name by doing so. Thank you that you give us your precious word to feed our understanding into the truth that we have embraced because it is the word of life. And so, Father, as we're here this morning to feed from your word, may your spirit open our hearts even deeper. And, Father, may we just even become stronger in our trust and our beliefs and our convictions that this indeed is the word of God. 
So, Father, thank you for being here and being with us both now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hayden Planetarium in New York City some years ago ran an advertisement in New York newspapers inviting those who would like to make the first journey to another planet to submit an application. Within a matter of days, over 18,000 people applied. These applications were then given to a panel of psychologists who upon reviewing them concluded that the vast majority of those who had applied wanted to start a new life on another planet because they were so discouraged by life on this one. How interesting. And also how revelational in the sense that many in that huge city seemed downhearted and disappointed with their present circumstances. How about us this morning? If given the opportunity to move on to a new location in order to put behind our problems and unhappinesses, we might be feeling these days, uh, would you be one to submit an application and go? And that question brings to mind a very famous song that I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam and the deer and the antelope play where nothing never is heard. Oh, you've heard this one, have you? <laughs> I just heard, and the skies are not cloudy all day. Oh, if life were just like that. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. If today you feel a bit down emotionally and somewhat discouraged because of some lingering family issue, perhaps a personal health concern, maybe unanswered prayers, even the weather, wondering if God really is in control of your current situation or not, then you're in good company with an Old Testament prophet named Elijah. He experienced a huge disappointment in his life that led to an extreme form of discouragement that almost neutralized and destroyed his calling to serve God. In our personal lives, we need to be very careful that disappointments, possibly arising from workplace issues, relational misunderstandings, personal dreams that fall apart or questioning God's ability to direct our lives do not lead us into the Elijah syndrome of becoming discouraged and disinterested in serving God. And not only the need to be careful, but also to be on our guard because disappointment can grow into discouragement, which can progress into depression, which can become eventually leading to desertion. But let us be equally encouraged because through the experience of Elijah, we can discover and apply an antidote to discouragement that will steer us away from such a potential and damaging emotional decline. The title of this morning's message is Overcoming Discouragement Through a Renewed Focus. Based upon a key event in the life of Elijah, and the three basic parts are a contest, a disappointment, and a renewed focus. And if I were, in fact, that sounds like a three-point sermon, doesn't it? If I were to put the sermon in a sentence, it would be this. 
In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, including disappointments that are actually God appointments designed to teach us that his plan is far better than ours. Now, let that's, those words sink in here. Not Just don't use your head, but let it sink down to the deeper part of your emotional being. His plan is better than ours. Why do we fight that? Let's begin with a contest. 1 Kings 18, verses 16 to 39, is a very familiar story to which uh, we'll just do a brief Reader's Digest condensed version because I know you're quite familiar with it. Um, at this particular moment in 1 Kings 18, Israel is a split nation with the northern and southern kingdoms. Socially and spiritually, both are caught in a downward spiral of apostasy, which means abandoning Jehovah God and worshiping false gods, such as the Baals and the Asterisks. And basically, they're in an atmosphere of moral degeneracy. Because any time a nation floats away from the truths of God's word, they're heading for a moral abyss, believe me. Sin is rampant, and need I say more about their deplorable condition? So God raises up a prophet, Elijah, to rebuke King Ahab and the people of the northern kingdom for their disobedience. So punishment begins with no rain for three years, producing a famine. Elijah, who announced this news, is branded an agitator, blamed for the famine, and is condemned to die. However, God protects him, provides for him for three years. Now the time has come for the contest. And we enter the story in 1 Kings 18, verses 16 to 22, and I'll just briefly read these to you. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him where Elijah was. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashtoreth who eat at Jezebel's table. Do the math. 850. That's how widespread this apostasy was. That many priests and priestesses. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. The people said nothing. There are three things I'd like to point out here. First of all, Elijah confronts Ahab with the truth by saying, you've abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Secondly, he issues a challenge, verses 19 and 20, to meet him on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And thirdly, he confronts the people of Israel with the question, how long will you waver between two opinions? And the result is the people say nothing. Unbelievable. I call these people compromised fence-sitters. Compromised fence-sitters. Why? Because they wanted the best of both worlds, Jehovah God and the Baals. But Elijah told them they can't have it both ways. Why? Because this is compromise, 
and a compromise of this kind has a sneaky way of neutralizing and polluting everything that's being blended. Does that make sense? Let me illustrate what I mean. A metropolitan family one day decided to leave the crowded city and head for the wide open spaces. They bought a ranch out west where they intended to raise cattle. A month later, some friends visited the ranch and asked if they'd picked out a name for the place. Well, said the man, I wanted to call it the Bar J. My wife wanted to call it the Susie Q. But one of my sons liked the Flying W and the other one preferred the Lazy Y. So in the end, we compromised and called the place the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. But where are all your cattle, the friends asked. The new rancher replied, they're all gone. None of them survived the branding. You see, compromise can sometimes lead to a death. And in the case of Israel's disobedience, it led to a spiritual death, a turning away from the true God, and that is what compromise with the world will do to the believer, will distract and lead them away from a pure, gratifying, God-honoring lifestyle. If there's a universal truth to be had here for us today, it would be this. We cannot compromise God's commands and expect to be victorious over the power of sin. And I repeat, because repetition is the mother of learning. We found that out with poems in the children's feature today. <laughs> Compromise has a sneaky way of neutralizing and polluting everything that's being blended. And the contest Elijah proposes is probably well known to most of us, verses 22 to 29. Each side is to sacrifice a bull, and the bull consumed by fire coming down from the sky would confirm who, the, who is the true God. So uh, verses 26 to 29 reveal, in spite of all their efforts, the prophets of Baal failed to bring fire down in the sky. And then starting with verse 30, we read that Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord. Why did he start there? Have you ever thought why he started there? Well, it's because it was God's prescribed way the people of Israel were to approach him. The altar is where animal sacrifices were performed to atone for the sins of the people. So Elijah placed wood on the repaired altar, the bull to be sacrificed, dug a trench, had the people pour 12 large jars of water over it all. And he was not finished yet. He prayed to God and asked for four things in verses 36 to 37. First of all, Elijah prayed to God, let it be known today that you, Yahweh, are God in Israel. Number two, that I am your servant and done these things at your command. Number three, answer me so the people will know that you are God. And fourthly, that you, God, are turning their hearts back again. You see, not only did Elijah repair the altar, but notice how his prayer focused on glorifying God. It wasn't about Elijah, I'm God's prophet, I'm God's spokesperson, it's all about me. We don't see that in this prayer. This prayer was all about how Elijah was bringing the people's attentions back on the living God by that prayer. And he prayed that, and the result, verse 38, 
Fire came down from the sky, consumed everything. People fall on their faces and cry out, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. So Elijah has the false prophets executed, and this concludes the contest. This man, Elijah, who walks with God, experienced three years of miracles of receiving food and water during a famine, who confronts the king unharmed, who is instrumental in calling down fire from heaven. Wow, what an amazing victory. Put yourself in his sandals. It's got to be gratifying, satisfying that, wow, a miraculous event happened here, and this is really going to change everybody's heart. He's on a big spiritual high. He's full of confidence of what God was able to do, but no, because following that victory came an overwhelming shock to his ego. And that leads us to our second point this morning, a disappointment. I'm going to add the word a shocking disappointment because it was a shock to his system, so to speak. Chapter 19 Verses 1 to 3, the first part of verse 3. We've had it read for us today. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. By this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Talk about an encore. <laughs> He's hightailing it out of town. She utters a death threat. It so terrorized him that he went running away filled with confusion and frustration. Did you know that? He was running away with confusion and frustration. Now, some of you may think, now wait a minute. Verse 3 says he was afraid and ran for his life. So therefore, he was filled with fear and intimidation. Well, I agree with you. That's certainly a part of it. But it's not the complete reason why he hightailed it out of town. Um, I just mentioned that Elijah was confused and frustrated, and that's because of the word in the NIV that says afraid. In English, afraid means scared, frightened, and fearful. In the Hebrew, the corresponding word is pronounced riria. However, a different Hebrew word is used in this text, pronounced waywar. Big difference here. Which means, waywar means um, saw, S-A-W, saw, um, not in the sense of I saw a monkey climb the tree, but saw, it's better rendered realize or to become aware of. And used in verse 3, I suspect Elijah, along with the death threat, realized or became aware of that the demonstration of God's power in killing off all the false prophets failed to lead King Ahab and Queen Jezebel to repent from their worship of false idols. They did not repent from their sins. Elijah was looking for a revival. He had an expectation that there was going to be a revival in the leadership. It didn't happen. And he came into that awareness and gets this death threat, and he hightails it out of town. To word it another way, or more... Uh, Way to, well, way to put it, I'm tempted to think that he had an expectation that this contest would turn not only the people, but the leaders back to God, and it did not, leading Elijah to be confused, frustrated, and disappointed. Failed personal expectations led to what we read in verses 3 to 5 of 1 Kings 19. He ran for his life when he came to Beersheba, which, by the way, Beersheba was in the southernmost part of the southern kingdom, roughly 90 miles 
from Jezreel, up in the capital of the northern kingdom where Ahab, uh, uh, Elijah was. So how on foot, how many days would that be to go 90, 100 miles? Three days, four days? That's a long trip. And then he leaves his servant there, and what does he do? He left his servant there while he himself went another day's journey, another 20, 30 miles into the desert, came to a broom tea, a tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. You see the progression here? Disappointment to discouragement to depression to desertion. Disappointment is the feeling of sadness caused by the defeat of one's hopes or expectations. There's that E word again. Discouragement is having lost all confidence or enthusiasm. Can you see that? Disappointment, discouragement, depression, desertion. And this downward spiral speaks so well of Elijah because his expectation for a complete revival of the nation did not happen. And he crashed big time. Author and pastor Charles Swindoll, in his book entitled Killing Giants, Pulling Thorns, writes these words about expectations. Battling thorns is a search and destroy process. Sometimes, however, the enemy eludes identification. They're tough to label. But I can think of at least two species that are easy to spot. That's because they almost always grow up together. Entwined from the roots up, these twin vines become practically inseparable. One is called expectation, and the other is called disappointment. Stop and think it over. What causes you to experience disappointment? Someone or something has failed to fulfill your expectations, right? You've had it all set up in your mind, the way a certain situation would work out, the way a certain person was going to respond, but it never materialized. Your wish fell fast and hard against stone-cold reality. Your desire dissolved into an empty, unfulfilled dream. And this quote seems to sum up beautifully Elijah's attitude and words uttered in verse 4. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. And I suggest that the root cause of his disappointment stands from what Pastor Swindoll wrote. Someone or something had failed to fulfill your expectations. In that word, you are put Elijah's name. Something failed to fulfill what Elijah expected, if not demanded to happen. Because look how much work and effort he put into it. Only to get Zippo. And this caused this mighty prophet of God to utter his feeble resignation from serving God. I wonder, is it possible that some failed expectation in your current employment or personal health or relationship, plans failing to materialize or mistrusting God got you on the run like Elijah today? If so, I have some sobering news and some good news. I'm going to give you the sobering news first. The sobering news is that I'm sorry to hear of your disappointment, and I mean that sincerely, regarding stuff not working out according to your hopes and aspirations. But I wonder, I ask, is it possible that you put your desires above God's will for your life and you're not accepting what's happened as being part of his plan in the matter? Elijah wanted repentance and revival, didn't get it, so off he runs away. It's like he's sulking. 
Another way to word this is my will and not thy will be done. Self has dethroned surrender and acceptance of God's will and no wonder disappointment has managed to become lodged in, in your soul. And if this is so, owning up to it, confessing, repenting from it can dislodge this dangerous emotion from anyone's hearts. Do you follow that? Owning up to it, admitting it, turning from it, and that begins the process of dislodging this powerful emotion of disappointment out of our souls. And that's the good news. The good news is, is that God loves and cares too much for us to let this demoralizing feeling rob us of his blessing, and this is demonstrated in what he did for Elijah. And that brings us to the third point this morning, a renewed focus. 1 Kings 19, verses 5 to 9, we have it here. He lay down on the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. I wonder if that cake of bread was manna that the supernatural visitor from heaven brought down from glory. I wonder. Can't prove it. It's just a thought. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. This was, I assume after he had a night's sleep or a long sleep. Came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. And uh, going to verse 9, he traveled 40 days and nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. That's Mount Sinai, by the way. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. Um, there's three themes in this section of scripture that begins the process of renewing Elijah's focus back on God and off of himself. And the first theme is that God is totally aware of where Elijah was. God was totally aware of where Elijah was, what he was feeling, and did not give up on him, which brings to mind the encouraging words that Moses spoke to Joshua in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. Moses says to Joshua, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be, dis be discouraged. Can we take that truth to heart this morning and be reminded? He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Amen. Amen. Let that lodge in your soul and push disappointment out. Feelings of disappointment or depression is not a signal that God has given up on Elijah or even us for that matter. God knew exactly where his prophet was when he collapsed under that bush with the words he uttered while falling asleep. And the second theme is that God sent a supernatural messenger to minister to his needs for food and water and to protect him while he was sleeping. And this brings to mind the words of the from the author of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14, writes, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? Oh, well, that must have been back in the New Testament time, not for today. Excuse me? Really? Is not God still doing so in our day and age of sending angels to minister to our needs, oftentimes unbeknownst to us. 
because maybe we're not looking for it, for those supernatural interventions. Is not God still doing so in our day and age, sending angels to minister to our needs as we wrestle with failures and dashed hopes? And then the third theme is that God had a plan for Elijah to fulfill, one that Elijah was unaware of until God revealed it to him 40 days later down the road. And this highlights what God promised his people through Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, the main problem with feelings of discouragement is that it blinds people to these three themes, causing them to think God has forgotten them, missing out on those supernatural interventions, and can't remember that God still is going to use them in his plan for their lives. The key to pulling out a disappointment is found in this quote here. I don't, do not have it on the screen. Our spirits grow gray before our hairs. Discouragement does, not, does come to old and young alike. Things often go contrary to our dreams and plans. The major cause of discouragement is a temporary loss of perspective. Restore proper perspective and you take on a new heart. Isn't that an interesting way of citing what disappointment is? It's a temporary loss of perspective. I got my eyes off the Lord. I got my eyes off how he's going to use me to his glory. I got somehow turned inward where I'm just... It's all about me thing. And somehow that sneaked in there because my expectations were dashed. Restore proper perspective and you take new heart. Boy, that brings to mind the famous chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of what? Earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. How's that for changing perspective? This course, in a way, is referring to prayer, scripture reading, meditating on how God has blessed the one who chooses to turn their focus back upon him on a regular basis. The famous hymn writer, um, when upon life's billows you're tempest-tossed, when you're discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings. And it's going to surprise you. It's going to change your focus. So to illustrate this principle of proper perspective, I have this true story to share with you. I find it inspirational. As a recently retired man was sitting on his porch down in Kentucky, his social security check was delivered. He went to the mailbox to retrieve it and thought to himself, is this all my life is going to be from this time on? just sitting on the porch waiting for my next check to arrive, it was a discouraging thought. So he took a legal pad and began to write down all the gifts, all the blessings, all the talents, and everything he had going for him. He listed them all, even small things. For example, he included the fact that he was the only one in the world that knew his mother's recipe for fried chicken in which he, she used 11 different herbs and spices. 
He went down to the local restaurant, asked if he could get a job cooking their chicken. Very soon, the chicken became the most popular item on the menu. He opened his own restaurant in Kentucky, then opened a string of restaurants, and eventually sold the Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise to a national organization for millions of dollars. He became their public representative and continued in that role till his death. See what happens when you change perspective? And you start assessing, you start evaluating, you come up with a plan. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. He sat down, wrote out all the gifts, blessings, talents, and so forth. This is restoring proper perspective, but it also led to a plan to get a job cooking chicken, and the rest is history. Elijah was ready to retire from being a prophet of God with a depressing statement, just take my life, let me die. What he'd forgotten about were three important realities. God was there and aware of his feelings. God sent a special messenger to minister to his need. God had a plan to help restore and renew his perspective in serving his kingdom purposes. Is it beyond the realm of possibility that in our current situations and circumstances today that God is still here and aware of our feelings? He will still send special messengers to minister to us. God still has a plan to help restore and renew our perspective in serving his kingdom purposes. I think it is. I believe the answer is yes to all three of those important realities, which... I'm recalling to our minds right now. And if it's helpful, I came across this chart listing six steps for getting over disappointment. I thought it was kind of cute. First of all, stay calm and collected. <laughs> Don't go running away like Elijah. Secondly, acknowledge how you're feeling. That's what I mean by owning up to it. I mean, it's an unpleasant feeling. Well, feel it. Own up to it. Reevaluate your expectations. Maybe do... Uh, a look-see at, well, maybe I was getting ahead of God and doing it without him, and maybe admitting that. Reassess the situation, sort of like what Colonel Sanders did. Turn disappointment into a challenge, which means make a new plan, and modify your objectives. That's the refocus. Getting back to walking closer to Jesus and getting a little bit closer to within, being within earshot of his voice instead of being out of earshot of his voice. So to bring this message to a conclusion, there are two reminders I wish to leave with you, and the first one is this. Remember that sermon and sentence I had near the beginning? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, including disappointments that are actually God appointments, designed to teach us that his plan is far better than ours. And secondly... I started off this message with an illustration of an advertisement regarding applying to travel to another planet, resulting in the conclusion by the psychologists that people were wanting to go because they were discouraged by life on this one. Well, I want to remind us all this morning that we have applied and have been accepted to travel to another world. It's called the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. It's also known as paradise. So let's... Let that truth grab disappointment and yank it out of our souls so that we can walk with a renewed focus on the one who has blazed the trail before us.